0: What's up, bingers? I have a deep passion for the work that today's guest has dedicated her life to. She's an attorney with the Center on Wrongful Convictions, and she specializes in false confessions. You've probably seen her on Making a Murderer, 2020, and several other documentaries. She's the host of Wrongful Conviction, False Confessions, the great and powerful Laura Nyrider. How are you?
1: Recovering. How are you? <laughs>
0: I'm just gonna say the same thing. I'm so dead and behind. Oh my god. Me gone. too.
1: Me too. I'm absolutely wiped. We're gonna have to energize for this because wow.
0: Did, did you have um? Did you have any events yesterday?
1: No, I came home yesterday, but it's like one of those days where like they booked this like afternoon flight home, but I had nothing in the morning. But I was like completely wiped from Saturday, so it's like one of those like weird lost days or just kind of like you know have to check out of the hotel and then sit at the airport
0: we had we left at um at six in the morning i had a flight saturday because i had nothing or on sunday yeah. i had nothing going on sunday oh, and God. then ended up with a seven-hour layover
1: oh jesus where do you live
0: i live in michigan okay i meant not far from because you're you're near chicago right I'm in chicago yeah yes i'm just right around the lake i'm just barely in michigan oh really Yep. Awesome. Just uh just north of South Bend, Indiana.
1: Nice. Nice. Nice, nice. Yep.
0: How was the uh how was the airport when you went? Because it was a nightmare. Fucking um, crowded. I had morning.
1: no idea. Like what was yeah. going on?
0: We got there at six for an eight AM flight, and I <laughs> I I have the TSA pre check and the clear thing. Yeah. I travel all the time. Yeah. So I zipped through and got coffee, and then my wife and Zach and his wife. Spent an hour and a half on the line and, and got out right before the flight took off.
1: An hour and a half. That is insane. It wasn't that bad when I was there later in the afternoon, but it was still you know, pretty crowded. Much more crowded than any airport I've, I've been to post-COVID. You know?
0: Right, like, right. I'm, oh, yeah. Know? And that was the thing. I've been traveling through COVID and it's been- Oh, you have? You get so used to just breezing in and out, in and out. Yeah. It was not like that. I
1: hear you. I hear you. So are we good to do this today or do we want to pick even another day if we're both <laughs> wiped?
0: No, we're good. I I can't I can't start over
1: again. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I hear you.
0: So, I I see that um even even one of the most powerful wrongful conviction attorneys that everybody knows just like the rest of us is recording podcasts in a closet. It looks like?
1: in yeah, in my linen closet. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's Very glamorous. Life is extremely glamorous.
0: That is the most common place that I cuz I'm doing all these interviews on Zoom. I always like to look and where everybody's at. Everybody is in a damn closet. Everybody. No, you
1: you're not in a closet though.
0: I'm not now, but but I'm six years into doing this, and now I finally have a studio, so I'm not in a closet Nice,
1: anymore. nice, nice, nice. I'm not sure if I'll last six years, but... <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, so how long have you been doing uh, Wrongful Conviction, False Confessions?
1: I have been doing that podcast um, for just over a year. We are two seasons in to Wrongful Conviction, mm-hmm. False Confessions. So it's been a total whirlwind, actually. You know, it was, of course, there was Making a Murderer, which... Was my introduction, my real introduction right. into how much people care about these stories and the the power of wrongful conviction stories to bring about real change. You know, I'd been in films and Dateline episodes and things like that before then, but making a murderer, you know, was there's was nothing like it before, and there's been nothing like it since. Um, serial podcast coming very close as well. Um, so that was my big introduction into this real power of media to move change, which is why we agreed to do the podcast on false confessions and. We've been so sort of unbelievably thrilled by its its you know popularity, its success. People want to hear these stories, which is just our honor to be able to tell them.
0: Can you? One thing I want to I want to make sure that our listeners can uh, find your podcast. We were emailing a little bit before we before we got on the air because I had I, I've listened to episodes like when people put up that Laura's got this episode out about these different cases. Uh, but when I went like to the Apple Podcast feed, it was a little confusing finding. Uh, so can you explain where people find your podcast to begin with?
1: Yes, thank you for asking that. It is a little bit hard to find, um, which is frustrating, but, but people do find it, which is great. Wrongful Conviction False Confessions shares a feed with other shows about wrongful conviction that all sort of fly under the wrongful conviction banner. So if people go on to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, as we say, go look up wrongful conviction and you will find a feed that is home to several different shows. You'll find our show. Wrongful Conviction, False Confessions. You will find uh, Wrongful Conviction, Junk Science, hosted by my friend Josh Dubin, which is about f- forensic science and its failures in these cases. And you'll find Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom, which is a series of interviews with people who've been exonerated.
0: Right. So that so that was the, the big one. So if you're looking for Wrongful Conviction, False Confessions, it's not a standalone, own, it's own, your own feed. So just look up the Wrongful Conviction feed, and you can find your show, Josh's show, and Jason's. Show all in that
1: feed. That's right. I think we're going to be spinning off our own feed here shortly. But in the meantime, yeah, just go dig through uh, the wrongful conviction feed, and you'll find us.
0: Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, and it's a, such a great feed because all three of those shows are so. F- I just had Jason on a few weeks ago. uh I'm going to try to w- try to hook up with Josh sometime soon the junk science one. But being the you know doing my other show is truth and justice, working all on wrongful convictions. I'm just fascinated with everything that you guys are doing.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a fun little medley of a feed. So yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 And, and your, what you do in particular is one of the most fascinating things to me is I'm really into, I, I got connected with Jim Clemente like six years ago, working on um, profiling and statement analysis that he was, he kind of started off consulting with me and then he kind of started mentoring me. And it just really like, that's where a lot of my focus goes is into doing statement analysis and, and analyzing Confessions and false confessions in particular. And so I'm really fascinated with the work that you do on that. So, so how did so, you know, my first introduction to you was on making a murderer with Kathleen Zellner. Do you, have you always worked with Kathleen? Was that just for that that particular case or how, how did you get into this media space?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, to be clear, you know, with, with the making a murderer case, right, I represent Brendan Dassey along with my colleague Steve Drizzen, who also co hosts the false confession podcast with me. Uh, we've represented Brendan for 13 years or so now, ever since he was convicted, uh, coming within about 12 hours of getting him out a few years ago before we were blocked by the federal court system. Uh, but we represent Brendan and serendipitously Kathleen Zellner, who is a private attorney here in the Chicago area who also does wrongful conviction work. Uh, she decided to get involved in Stephen Avery's case after season one of Making a murder. So the two of us have been working on sort of parallel tracks because, of course, the cases are are quite different in terms of the evidence. Against them, right? Uh, You know, Stephen Avery's job is, his task is to fight um, this physical evidence that the state says that they have against him. Brendan's task has always been, because there is zero physical evidence tying Brendan to this case, Brendan's task has always been to fight his own words, right? The confession that was coerced out of him by two seasoned adult interrogators who were using very coercive interrogation techniques that we see over and over and over again in false confession cases, so for Brendan, you know, it's always been—it's—it's it's a psychological game, right? They played a psychological game against Brendan Dassey and and won, right? He was 16 with intellectual disabilities, um, didn't stand much of a chance in that room. So, um, yes, so making a murderer is, is certainly the, it, you know, the biggest, I guess, foray into the media that that I've done. We've been involved in a lot of high-profile high cases over the years at the Center on Wrongful Convictions, which is here in Chicago. We're part of Northwestern University. So we're law professors. We teach students. They work on our cases with us. We're lawyers. We go out there and represent people who've been wrongly convicted. Our center has exonerated about 45 innocent people over its history. And um, you know some of the cases that come to us, most of them are people who are not so fortunate as to have Netflix pick up their story, but who are no less deserving you know, than Brendan or other high-profile people. But we have been involved in the West Memphis Three case, if some of your listeners remember that case out of Arkansas, a terrible, tragic mm-hmm. um, miscarriage of justice in which three teenagers, Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly were wrongly convicted. And there were documentary films made about that. And I, I was a very young lawyer when we joined Damien Eccles' legal team, Steve and I. And in that case, right, there was the Paradise Lost series of films that had been made in the '90s about West Memphis Three. Right, Joe Berlinger right. and Bruce Sinofsky made those films for HBO, and sort of lit this global movement on fire with those documentary films that hinted at the the three defendants' um, innocence. And we got involved in representing Damien right when Peter Jackson, the Hollywood filmmaker from Lord of the Rings, right, right got involved in making a second documentary about their case, West of Memphis, um, as as a way to boost the fact that new DNA evidence had just been uncovered in their case that excluded them and pointed elsewhere. And so that case um, was a sort of a crash course for me in the power of telling these stories and what can be accomplished. I've no doubt in my mind that it was part of why they got released, why the West Memphis Three got released was the power of these films and the engagement with people who really care about this, these issues, or maybe they don't know they care about these issues until they see it on TV or they watch the film. So, to to go through that experience, which of course was pre social media, right? I mean, that was hot before social media existed. And then to go Barely internet existed. Barely. Well, yeah, they were exactly, they were released in in 2011, almost exactly 10 years ago, actually, this August. And then to go through, uh, you know, making a murderer with, with Brendan, seasons one, we were in the tail end of season one and then season two, of course. And to watch that light the world on fire. I mean, that's, I can't tell you for someone who, you know, for the first, I don't know, eight years of my career (laughs) as a wrongful conviction attorney, I would tell anyone who cared to listen, who I could sort of pin down for five minutes, hey, you know what? Wrongful convictions actually happen, right? Innocent people actually are convicted. People actually confess to crimes they didn't commit. I know that sounds crazy, but it happens so much more often than you think. And I'd just be trying to sell this idea. And then these these films came out. Most prominently, the series "Making a Murderer," and suddenly the world got it because they saw it.
0: Yeah, you know, and, and it started. It, it's like that. Things started rolling with I think the Paradise Lost in West of Memphis. With seeing Jesse Miss Kelly's, uh, you know, people started to. I think by the time West of Memphis came around, people were starting to get the idea that maybe he just falsely confessed. And then yeah, you know, you serial yes. came out, and that like got the podcast you know little kicked up the off podcast the podcast world. industry.
1: It's interesting to me how so many of these cases sort of built industries, right? Serial kicked off the podcast industry in a big way, right? The Anand Sayed case, making a murderer, kicked off the Netflix documentary series, the global side in a big way. I mean, these stories are are like galvanizing industries.
0: Yeah, and and the biggest thing is 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 more so than just like I mean, certainly the attention to the case, the cases that were covered, was great. But as you said, like it just, I think it opened up people's eyes to the fact that. These things really happen that people are wrongfully convicted. And, and, and an even harder leap to get people to take is to understand that people do confess to things that they didn't do.
1: Absolutely. Right. It's so counterintuitive. You know, all of us think, of course, I would never confess to a crime I didn't commit, right? Isn't that what we all think? Of course, that's what we all think. But what I've learned in, you know, now 14 years of doing this work, representing dozens of people who confessed to crimes they didn't commit and studying hundreds more and talking right. about it every chance I can get is um, every single one of us has a breaking point.
0: Yeah. And that's, I, I interviewed um, Jim Trainum, who I'm sure you're familiar with yeah. a couple of years ago. And he's, he's at the same thing. He's like, people say I would never, it's funny because my, my wife doesn't listen to any of my podcasts, but she loves <laughs> true crime, like TV and every, and, and, but she knows like the case I'm working right now is very similar to the one to Brendan Dassey and also to The case we're going to talk about later today, it's a 15-year-old girl who was interrogated by police for seven hours without a parent, without a lawyer, and was lied to and misled and ended up – in her case, they didn't record anything. They typed out a confession for her and then had her sign it, and then it sent her away for prison for life. And the physical evidence shows that, that in my opinion, she's completely innocent. But I do this. I talk about it with my wife, but she'll still, if we're watching a documentary – we just saw something you were on. Uh, a couple of weeks ago. I don't remember. What, what other Netflix show have you been on or other documentaries have you been on? Um, f- I, think, I can't believe I'm drawing a blank. A few
1: of them. <laughs> I was just on, maybe you saw the twenty, the ABC 2020 uh, on the Kevin Fox case. I was just on that. I just, or I was on CNN about death penalty and, and wrongful convictions. I don't know. I'd pop up from place to place. <laughs> it could have
0: been. It was one of the cases I was researching, and I'm like, I'm like, there's that's. It's actually the night that I sent you the, the tweet to set up this interview whatever documentary i was watching to research a case you popped up and i'm, I'm like oh that's Laura Nyrider. she's the one from making a murder that i and then i think i heard you say on there that or they said they said that you had the podcast too i'm like oh i need to talk to her amazing <laughs> yeah how did you get into because that that is really kind of your specialty right is is false confessions
1: yes it's my specialty you know i i, I do a lot of work in the sort of general wrongful conviction space but From day one, false confessions absolutely, you know, disturbed me, fascinated me, sort of obsessed me. Because again, it's not a question of, oops, we did the testing wrong, or, you know, we we don't understand the science. It is all psychology. It is all the psychological game of interrogation. How do you turn a person from, of course I wouldn't falsely confess, that doesn't make any sense, into someone who says they committed a murder that they didn't commit, right? What is what is the psychological mind game? of interrogation that, that is so risky that it can produce, you know, so many false confessions.
0: It's so interesting. And I, I, you, you probably know this, but so like I was um, prior to doing this, I was an arson investigator and I was actually taught the read technique. I still have my textbook out in my office out there. And it says on like page two of the read technique textbook that the interrogation is psychological warfare.
1: Yeah. So everybody should go out and buy the read technique <laughs> book, right? It's right. called Criminal yeah. Interrogations and Confessions. And I think they're on their fourth edition now. Oh, is that right? I'm not sure. But it's a fascinating read, right? Because it, it explains exactly these interrogation techniques, which are really old. So here's a fun fact about the read technique of interrogation, which is very similar to the technique that was used on Brendan Dassey that people saw in Making a Murderer, and which you know many people have, have criticized as associated with false confessions. So it was actually developed, the read technique and the underlying principles, uh, the sort of psychological tricks, were invented in the 1940s in Chicago at Northwestern University, which is where I now teach and work, right, um, by a, a professor named Fred Inbau. So back before a psychological interrogation was developed, people were interrogated using physical abuse, right? That's where we get the term the third degree, right? They were like, You know, hung outside windows until they confessed or beaten up until they confessed. That was just standard practice. And then in the 1940s, Fred Inbaugh and the Reed technique come along. And, you know, at the time it's progressive, it's enlightened. Hey, let's stop beating people. Let's just use these psychological tricks instead to get confessions. And at the time it was great news. But we're still using (laughs) these techniques from the 1940s, even though, even though now, of course, we have DNA evidence. And we're proving these confessions false at a rate much higher than anyone ever expected. And under circumstances that are much different than anybody ever expected. It doesn't take physical abuse to coerce a false confession. It takes lies. It takes manipulation. It takes deceit, psychological warfare. That's what it takes.
0: Right. And that's and what's amazing is when this technique was first developed, that you can see, okay, here's something, and look, we're getting confessions. It's working. And it may seem like a great asset to law enforcement but then now 75 80 years later we have a great data set to look at where we can literally look at statistics and show i've heard anywhere from 25 to 29 percent of dna proven wrongful convictions involved a false confession so so like so now we know like that's a quarter of the time a quarter of the time people are, are wrongfully convicted it's because of this technique. They said they did something they didn't do. So when are we going to change it?
1: That's it's such a good question. And here's something else, by the way, before we get into, into the change question, which is such an important question. You know, one of the interesting things about the read technique and other, other commonly, formed, commonly used forms of interrogation techniques, if you read these books, the instruction is you don't interrogate unless you believe the person to be guilty already, right? right. The purpose of interrogation is very clearly not to find the truth. You're not trying to learn information or test a theory, right, during interrogation. Police are trained to to interrogate only after they believe you're guilty. But of course, why are they interrogating you if they believe they're guilty? It's because they don't have enough evidence yet. Right. Right? They need the confession. So it's this weird self-perpetuating. The right? There's a problem. There's a problem. Exactly. So this is this is one of the fascinating things about interrogation. You're sort of supposed to go in with this based on this preconceived hunch that this person is guilty and not leave the room until you get Confirmation of that by hook or by crook, you know, using sometimes really, really disturbing tactics like we saw with Brendan and with Jesse Miss Kelly and -hmm. with so many others of these cases, right? Lies about the evidence is a huge tactic in interrogations that lead to false confessions. So things like, I found your fingerprints on the gun, right? No one's going to believe you're innocent, Right. right? Even though that's not true, police are allowed to lie during interrogations. About the evidence against a suspect. It's part of this process of of psychological interrogation, part of the process of breaking down a suspect into the state of hopelessness. You are caught, you are screwed, right? There's a mountain of evidence against you. No one is going to believe you're innocent. And if you're in that room, even if you are innocent, you've got this cop or maybe three cops in your face saying, hey man, my crime lab, my crime lab, it's your prints on that gun. You can tell me all day you never touched it, but no one's gonna believe you. You're thinking to yourself, "Oh my god, like this is horrible." There's been some awful mistake. I don't know what's going on, but these guys are in my face. They really seem to believe I did this, right? The crime lab somehow is is, is identifying my fingerprints. He's right. No one's gonna believe I'm innocent.
0: Yeah, and it's like this whole setup. You know, there's the the re technique teaches in, like you said, there, first it's an interview, right? And then the interrogation starts when you think that you have, when you have the right person, but even that's abused. I mean, that, that, you know, that, that, that's an excuse to keep, say, a minor without notifying their parents because, oh, they're not a suspect yet. We're just interviewing. You know, they're, they're not a suspect yet. But then once they get into that interrogation, they do exactly that. They'll lie. And, put, and we saw the same thing. Again, the case I'm working now, Jennifer Jeffley out of Houston, Texas. Mm-hmm. They, yes. The 15-year-old, they lied to her. They told her. They, they just kept pushing, like, well, we have your fingerprints here. So then you watch her story change. Well, she's like, oh, well, I, I touched the drawer because of this. Right. And that's what I was getting at earlier when my wife was like, I just, I would never do that. And, and as Jim Trainum said, if you hold the right gun to your head, they just have to figure out which gun it is to hold to your head, you will mm-hmm. crack. Right. And that's what happens is they lie. And then once they get you in so deep and it's amazing, like it's literally what I'm describing sounds so awful. It's in the goddamn textbook. Yeah. Sitting right yeah. there, like back you into a corner until you're in so deep. Now you've said you touched this. You said you touched this. You did this because I lied to you and told you your DNA was there. And you refuse to accept the fact that I it wasn't, and then when you feel like you have nowhere to go, then they offer you a way out.
1: Right? Exactly. Exactly.
0: Yeah, they say things like, "Well, okay, listen. Sometimes accidents happen. Maybe it was maybe it was a mistake. Maybe you didn't mean to kill it. Right. Maybe 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 she just fell, or maybe did she? Maybe she came after you first, and you were defending yourself. Exactly. This is and what they call they the keep...
1: theme, right? The theme. You, they provide some sort of, you know." excuse or explanation, something that would make you feel a little bit better about saying you did it, right? Some sort of face-saving right. justification, right? Even what's amazing is there's actually a separate book. You should get this book too. Also by the same um, outfit that that developed and sells the read technique. It's a, just a book of themes, of, of these sort of face-saving excuses that they use to get confessions. And it's it's categorized by crime. So you can literally look up everything from you know Arson <laughs> to like sexual abuse. <laughs> and like, here's a bunch of reasons why you might've done it that aren't that bad sounding. It's crazy. Like, uh, like arson, for example, it's like, oh, well, you know, you just wanted, uh, you know, you just wanted attention and you were going to put it out before it got out of hand, but then you were interrupted. So it's really that person's fault. I mean, it's just like these crazy <laughs> themes, but this is how they're, they're taught to do it. Yeah.
0: They've already got you in a position where you're so desperate that you're like, Well, that doesn't sound too bad.
1: And then they make promises, right? I mean, you see so many of these interrogations. If you just accept one of these themes, if you just tell us it was an accident or, you know, you lost your temper or you meant to put out the fire or whatever the case may be. If you just tell us that, people will understand they're going to want to help you, right? They're going to want to look out for you. The judge will look at you differently. The prosecutor will look at you differently. Maybe it's a slap on the wrist. Maybe you'll get to go home tonight. I don't know. Right. But if you don't cooperate, if you don't at least give me that, then they're going to throw the book at you. Right. It'll be I mean, they're going to come down hard like an avalanche. Right. So which one is it going to be?
0: Right. And then they and then they get you to accept the theme, which you think sounds like is leading is is less incriminating, maybe going to be less punishment. But you don't realize that they're just gaining ground on you. They're just they're pulling a little bit. Yeah, It's like, first, I'm going to get you to by lying to you about the evidence, I'm going to get you to admit you were there when you really weren't there. And now that I've got you inside, now you're trapped inside. And now I'm going to get you to admit that, well, you killed them, but it was an accident. And now you've killed them. And at that point, we're, you have nowhere left to go.
1: Yeah, there's there's no good way to have killed someone. <laughs>
0: exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. There's, but you don't know. They, they, they convince you. But they tell you differently. And... It's
1: all based on deceit and manipulation, right? right? What's interesting is these techniques, back in the day when they were invented, were based on door-to-door, high-pressure sales techniques. Right. Really. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. The same technique techniques that are like, "Hey, I'm selling you. I don't know a set of knives (laughs) or whatever." And you know, this is this this deal is going to go away. It's going to expire right now. This is your last chance. You know, Mm -hmm. right now you've got to do this deal. Otherwise, your life is going to be terrible in X way because you didn't buy the set of knives. But it's going to be so much better. Here's all the different great things these knives can do for you. But you have to buy them now. You see that same technique in interrogations, right? All the time, officers are trained. To come in and say look if you just accept one of these themes if you just say it was an accident i can go tell my supervisor that but he's 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 you know leaving in in an hour right this is it man i'm not coming back in this room this is your chance now 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 it's just like being sold a bill of goods except the bill of golds that goods that you're being sold is your life all right behind bars sure
0: yeah and that was you know in the lies like i keep going back to jennifer's case because the one i'm engrossed in right now while she was sitting there having her confession typed up, her mother calls, she talks to her mom on the phone and the in the and the detective tells both Jennifer and her mom as soon as we're done with this statement, you can go home. Yeah. And her mom saying, I want to come down there. No, no, no. No need. We're about to bring her home. As he's typing a confession.
1: That's heartbreaking.
0: Yeah. And the and the theme they used with her was, well, I was just a lookout during a robbery Mm -hmm. and they killed her. And 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 and, and and she names two imaginary people that killed the woman, killed Catalina Palomino, and thinks that, okay, I'm going home now. I told them who did it. And then she gets locked up literally for the rest of her life because of the aiding and abetting laws. Now she has confessed to murder without even realizing she confessed to murder because they told her she could go home.
1: Yeah, it's, it's just such a common set of facts. It's heartbreaking. And that's a good example of something you see, especially with kids when they're being interrogated, is the way That police officers will actually try to use a parent against their own child, which Mm -hmm. you know I'm a mom. That's that's reprehensible. It doesn't take a lawyer again to explain why that's so wrong. You see, police using the same techniques on the parent as on the child, and the parent comes to believe that the child needs to confess because the parent's being told that that you know Jennifer or whoever will get to go home um, if they just cooperate. And so those are some of the hardest cases to see. That's why, by the way, that's why when we push for Reform around the country because it's a big part of what we do at the Center on Wrongful Convictions. Learn from these cases, try to pass laws, work to change uh, policies so that this happens less often. At least, we're very proud that after making a murderer, um, two states passed laws. The first two states in the country passed laws requiring lawyers for kids inside the interrogation room. Right, California, kids eighteen and under get a lawyer. Right, have to have a lawyer. Parent too, that's great, that's great, but you need a lawyer as well. Someone to help navigate the system. Someone who won't, uh, who will be able to push back against these tactics in a way that, you know, just a, a layperson might not be able to. In Illinois, it's it's uh, kids under age fifteen for certain offenses. So these are very beginning laws, but people are starting to wake up to this problem. Another amazing development that just happened about ten days ago is Illinois became the first state in U.S. history to pass a law that bans police from lying in the interrogation room to kids. You know, it's it was, it's absolutely phenomenal passed with bipartisan support. There's only a single vote <laughs> against it in both chambers of the Illinois legislature. It's incredible stuff.
0: What's well, amazing that's my, the next thing on my list was was to talk about was because yeah. it didn't just happen. You were a big part of how that happened. Can you can you explain that process? Because it's actually we were going to do this interview a week ago, but you were Grinding the midnight oils, getting this thing pushed through. (laughs) Yeah, that was
1: that was all of our Memorial Day weekend (laughs) because, of course, that's when the legislature chooses to meet, right? I don't know. Uh, (laughs) um, Yeah, so so myself and a number of colleagues around the country: Rebecca Brown from the Innocence Project, Lauren Caseberg from the Illinois Innocence Project, Michelle Ambachiani Wiley from the Cook County State's Attorney's Office. All these incredible humans, all these incredible humans were working on that um, on that bill. But yeah, we consulted on that bill with uh, the incredible lawmakers who sponsored it, uh, helped consult around the language, you know, suggested language based on our experience and expertise on false confession cases. And yeah, we did what we could do to make sure that the lawmakers, when they were considering this bill, heard from people who themselves had falsely confessed, who, the, who themselves had been lied to and spent, you know, years and years and years in prison based on this, based on this, uh, you know, flawed technique. And one of the things that I'm proudest of actually is you know, I said this bill was bipartisan. The House minority leader, um, a Republican named Jim Durkin, came on board as a co-sponsor of this bill precisely because, and he, he said this in the press, because he had seen Making a Murderer. And uh-huh. he had watched oh, the video, great. the interrogation video of Brendan, and like the rest of the world, <laughs> immediately saw how wrong it was and saw this bill as a way to prevent future Brendan Dassey's.
0: That's a, that's amazing. And it and. And that, uh, I think, is a good transition into the case we're talking about because you have now legislation passed in Illinois that makes it so police cannot lie to minors.
1: Yes, and similar bills pending in New York and Oregon, so stay tuned.
0: Oh, that's great. Yeah. And the the case we're going to talk about today is the, the wrongful conviction of Robert Davis, who was wrongfully convicted based on a false confession that occurred because law enforcement lied to him so can you kind of break down robert's case
1: absolutely absolutely so robert davis's case is one of the very first false confession cases i worked on along with brendan dassey in the west memphis three and it's just one of the clearest most stomach (laughs) churning examples of interrogation techniques that are run amok on a, a, a clearly innocent person right so robert this is 2003 robert is 18 years old he's a high school senior in crozet Virginia, which is this small town uh, near Charlottesville uh, in Virginia. High school senior, and it's February 2003, so a couple months before he's due to graduate. He lives with his mom on a, on a street called Cling Lane. And one night, right, during the middle of a snowstorm, the house a couple doors down goes up in flames. Okay, big fire. Fire department shows up, they put out the fire, they go upstairs, and on the second floor of the house, they find the body of the homeowner, a woman named Nola Charles, in a bed, face up. And when they turn her over in her back, they find a knife. So immediately it becomes clear that this fire had been set to cover up her murder. Then they go to the room next door and find that her young uh, preschool age son had died of, of smoke inhalation, right? So it's a double, double murder case. Right. Police immediately f- fan out and pretty soon they settle on. Some, some decent suspects. There are other kids who live on that same block from a different family, Rocky and Jessica Fugit, who both have a history, um, a history of really turbulent mental health. It's very sad stuff, right? A lot of acting out, a lot of getting into trouble with the law, a lot of sort of disturbing behaviors it's due to unstable mental health on the part of both of them. Jessica was 15, Rocky was 19. But these were, so they pick up Rocky and Jessica. Jessica had been friends with Nola's with the victim's older teenage daughter and had a grudge against her friend's mom, against Nola, because Nola wouldn't let Jessica and 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 her friends, you know, dress the way they dressed or go where they wanted to go, you know, typical sort of teenage stuff. So the police pick up Rocky and Jessica, question them, and it seems to be going well, right? Both Rocky and Jessica confess to participating in this attack on on Nola Charles and her home and lighting it on fire. And Jessica even leads the police to the snow-covered field. Where they find um, a, a, an iron bar that was used to bludgeon Nola before she was stabbed. They test the iron bar. It's got Nola's DNA. It's like perfect evidence. The confessions are true. Rocky and Jessica are guilty. Should be case closed. Shouldn't be a story, right? But right. the police aren't satisfied. So they keep saying to Rocky and Jessica, there must have been other people involved. Who else was there? We think it wasn't just you, two. And Rocky and Jessica both rattle off the names. Of a bunch of kids from their high school that they didn't get along with, right? And the police go down this list of names one by one. Every one of these kids has got a great alibi, except the last name, which is Robert Davis, right? Robert was 18, lives at home with his mom. That night, his mom was out. He was at home asleep by himself. Not a great alibi, right? So the police bring in Robert Davis for questioning, believing him to be Rocky and Jessica's accomplice. And this whole thing, the whole interrogation is caught on tape. He's brought in completely unawares right? um, just after midnight uh, on February 22nd, 2003, into the, into the police station, thrown into an interrogation room. You know, Robert's a big guy. He's a tall guy, but he's, he's thrown into the corner. And these police officers come in, and he's questioned for about the next six hours from midnight until about six in the morning, approximately. And um, you know the interrogation that follows is one of the most coercive I've ever seen. Right, Robert starts out just like any of us. Right, he he he's not mentally limited um, like Jesse Muskelly of Brendan. He starts out just like what any of us would do. Right, what are you talking about, man? I would never do this. I couldn't. I couldn't hurt a fly. This is insane. How can I prove this to you? Right, can I take a polygraph? What can I do? What can I do? Right, but the officers shut him down, and they shut him down with lies. It's exactly what we talked about, Bob. These techniques they right. say to him. You know, Robert. You know, people shed skin cells wherever they go, and we found your skin cells, your DNA, at the scene, which is a complete lie. This house went up in smoke. There was no physical evidence recovered from that house at all. Right. But that's what they say to him, and you can see on this video, this this big eighteen year old guy is shook. You know, he is scared. Right. right? You can see this like panic radiating off. I'm like, what are they talking about? But Jesus, they really think I did this. You know. And this goes on and on. And they say to him, Robert, this is all on tape, right? They say to him, Robert, look, here's the thing. If you don't confess, you're going to get the ultimate punishment. And this is Virginia, right? So what does that mean? Right.
0: It's the death penalty.
1: Death penalty. Exactly. He's 18. He's eligible.
0: I wanted to ask you about that because maybe I have a misconception about that. But I was under the impression that there were Supreme Court rulings that made it so you couldn't threaten someone with the death penalty. Am I just just wrong about that or how did they get around that?
1: Wrong about that. No such ruling.
0: So so they can absolutely just threaten you with the death penalty if you don't confess.
1: Yeah, what exactly? Well, we can talk about the law. The law is extremely unclear when it comes to what police officers are allowed to do and not allowed to do. So some judges if you if you see that will throw out the confession, other judges won't. Right? So it depends on what's going on in your jurisdiction, what your local judges' opinions are. Um, which is part of the problem. There's there's like no guidelines in this space, no real guidelines in the law to guard against false confessions. Well, and, and
0: the laws seem to have very little teeth. We went We went through that in Jennifer's case where there is a law in Texas that says that once a juvenile is in custody and a suspect, then the police have to notify their parents. Yes. And in her case, they never did. In fact, her mom called at that time and they told her, oh, no, no, she's going to be home soon, so don't worry about it. Didn't tell her that she was in custody, didn't tell her that she was confessing to a crime, which 100% broke the law, but the law has no teeth because there's like there's like another paragraph of the law that says, but this cannot be used to exclude a confession from evidence. So, like, who cares? <laughs> so what are we because doing here, right? Exactly.
1: It's complete. That's, that's so classic. That is so classic, right? And what's interesting, by the way, about that is only about 13 states in the country have any requirement whatsoever that police even attempt to call someone's parent before questioning a kid. Only 13 states.
0: And that's so it was shocking to me because when I first took Jennifer's case, my first thought was, this is illegal. You can't you can't interrogate a 15 year old without their parents. And then I found out, nope, that's not the case. They they absolutely can. And they do it all the time. It's amazing to me. It's it's awful that, that, that the system exists in such a way that I've had to teach my 10-year-old son that if any police ever ask you about anything, you only tell them, I want a lawyer and I want my dad, and you don't say another word. It, that is it. Even if they tell you, we just need you to help, do not talk to them. And it's pretty sad that I have to teach my 10-year-old that.
1: It's a totally sad state of affairs. I feel the same way. You know, we have a letter on file at our kid's school saying if the police show up and want to talk to our children, we do not consent to it. We represent, you know, I've, I'm fortunate enough to be able to say I represent my children, right? They're lawyered up. Yeah. Uh, it's on file, right? So, you know, hopefully someone will look in that file. Um, but of course, we teach our kids to say the same thing. And it is a sad state of affairs.
0: Hmm. But I didn't mean to de- derail you. So, so getting back to Robert's case, they they get him in there and they start lying to him.
1: Yeah, they get in there, right? They, they tell him they've got his his DNA at the scene and that he's staring at the death penalty, the ultimate punishment, unless he confesses, in which case they say maybe it'll be three to five years, right? I mean, like, that's not a hard choice. If you believe that the police believe that they've got your DNA at a double murder scene, I mean, it's, it's an agonizing choice to confess, but it's not a real choice,
0: right? Can, can you speak a little bit to that psychology? Because it's so hard for people to understand. In some way to help people understand how people can be manipulated in that way. For example, to say, we have your DNA on the scene when someone 100% knows that they weren't at the scene. Because that's what I get all the time. It's like, well, if they know they weren't, there's no way they would admit to it because they know they're lying. Well. But, but but they do. And how does that happen?
1: So in some cases, they don't know that they're lying. I can talk about a different example of that. But you know, in Robert's case, of course, he knew. <laughs> that he had never been to Nola Charles's house. Of course, he knew he'd never touched any murder weapon, you know, to his knowledge associated right. with her. But what happens to people in that space, it's, you know, A, you start thinking to yourself, my God, could maybe, maybe the killer took something from my house and used it to kill her? I don't know. Like, th- th- is that possible? So, you start sort of guessing because you don't know, of course, that the police are allowed to lie. No one knows right. that. So, you start imagining how could this possibly be because you think they have no reason to lie. Um, So that can happen. Or you can say to yourself, well, I know I wasn't at Nola Charles's house. I know I never touched anything involved with her murder. But what I think doesn't count, what the police think counts, right? And what the prosecutors think counts. And we're talking about criminal charges being brought against you. And if you were told for hours, And hours and hours that there is rock solid evidence against you, that I have three witnesses in the room next door who picked you out of a lineup, that I have your DNA evidence screaming your name as the perpetrator, and you're only making it worse for yourself by sticking to this lie, right? If they say that to you for hours, at a certain point, you're gonna say, you know what? This is completely fucked up. But they really believe I did this, and others are gonna believe it too, because apparently there's all this evidence against me. So what can I do and, to and make people, this this? I think
0: people people don't think don't realize how the mental exhaustion that comes in for six seven hours of interrogation and how bad you get beat down and how bad you just want to get the hell out of there and when you start yeah and you start to believe that it doesn't matter like you said it doesn't matter what I think they're going to like this is what the, they're saying they have this so it doesn't matter if I if I stick to it and then it's. Amanda, I, I interviewed Amanda Knox uh, a few weeks ago, and she was she explained that process to me. She's like, it's like the ultimate form of gaslighting. Yes, it's like you literally start to think that you're crazy. Yes, like when you're when they're telling you, listen, you're wrong. Right. Um, J- Jason Baldwin uh, told me he's, he's you know when 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 he was being now he now he he was able to get through it. He stuck to his guns and in his interrogations, but he said they kept asking me for the truth. And I kept giving him the truth and they refused to accept my truth. Yeah. And he's like, he's like, for it, it's so fucked up to be the that like, I'm telling you the truth and for them to keep telling me that my truth is not the truth over and over and over it again.
1: It is a complete mind game. I mean, it is, it is turning the world on its head. That is what mm-hmm. interrogation is all about, right? Is making the truth a lie and the lie the truth and just tell us a story and we're not going to accept it and we're going to say it whatever we need to say to get you into a place where you think that you need to say these things. It is completely disorienting. Another great example of, of lies during interrogation, which is different than what we're talking about, is the case of Marty Tankleff in New York. Uh, this is a case um, from over, I think over 20 years ago now. Um, Marty was a high school senior from a well-to-do family that lived on Long Island, You know, a very intelligent guy, intelligent family, business Businessman. His dad was a, a local businessman, you know, very successful. Um, and Marty woke up on his first day of senior year of high school to find both of his parents had been brutally beaten in, in two different rooms of the home. Um, he calls 911, he calls the police. The police take him in for questioning, right, as his parents are being brought to the hospital. Um, his mom was dead at the scene, but his dad was unconscious but still clinging to life at the time that Marty found him. And here's Marty, a high school senior, who's just discovered his parents like this in their home. And they bring him in for questioning. And during his interrogation, they tell him, you know, he knows his dad is at the hospital clinging to life. They tell him, your dad came out of the coma, Marty, long enough to tell us that you're the one who did this. Which is a complete lie. But Marty had no way of knowing that that was a lie. And, uh-huh. you know, he came to think because of that lie, my God, m- my father would never say that if if it weren't true. Mm-hmm. So maybe I did this and I don't remember doing it for some reason, right? Maybe I blacked it out. And of course, the police encouraged him to think that, you know, maybe you did this and, and didn't black it out. Your father wouldn't lie to you, Marty. You know, come on. Right. And he ended up confessing to the murder of his own parents. His father eventually passed away. So the the double murder of both of his parents, which is one of the most... Just wrenching lies uh, you can think of,
0: but the, but that's not an uncommon tactic either for them to the, the the whole blacked out didn't remember theme is you see a lot a lot of the wrongful convictions like that where it's like the only way this could have happened is if I was blacked out drunk sleepwalking whatever don't remember it and then police was like, let's go with that theme yeah. so okay so what happened and
1: you just don't remember right exactly that's in in those cases and those are actually the rarest. Form of false confessions, or one of the rarer forms of false confessions, that they're called internalized false confessions, where you internalize the police officer's insistence that you're guilty, and you start to actually think to yourself, "God, maybe did I did I have, like too much to drink, and I blacked out, and I did this, and I don't remember? You know, did I just block this out of my memory because it's like selective amnesia because it was so horrible, and I could, I, you know, just blocked it out because I don't want to relive it? Um, and of course, people who do have drinking or drug problems um, are more susceptible to those kinds of interrogation techniques, right? Because they probably have blacked out before and, you know, and and think they may have done it again. Um, but yeah, we see those those techniques. And then there are the dream interrogations, which are other interesting ones, right? Like Tommy Ward, the case of Tommy yeah. Ward in Ada, Oklahoma, which was the subject of the Netflix series, The Innocent Man. My organization, The Center on Wrongful Convictions, Greg Swigert, represents Tommy. Tommy confessed to uh, the murder of a woman in Ada, Oklahoma, because he came to the police when they, when they questioned him. He said, you know, this case was so disturbing. I read about it in the news. Everybody in the small town knew what happened to her. He's like, I've, I've been having nightmares about it because it's so disturbing. And they're like, okay, Tommy. And he recounts, you know, this nightmare of this, you know, scenario of, of her abduction. And they turn his dream into a real confession. You know, that's not a dream, Tommy. You live that. You live that. And he's still in prison today after spending, I think, about, he's been in for 35 years based on this dream confession. John Grisham actually wrote a book about it, right? Also called The Innocent Man. John Grisham's only nonfiction book because in this case, he thought the truth was stranger than fiction.
0: Right. And John Gershom actually appeared in that documentary, didn't he? He did.
1: Yeah, he's been a huge, yeah. huge supporter of Tommy. We're so grateful for for John's support there. He's actually really active in the wrongful conviction space across the country, um, including in Virginia, which is where Robert Davis's case happened. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of people. These these stories grab folks right from all different walks of life. Well,
0: it, it, it's fascinating. Like to, to me, it's it's so, that, and that's why I've really directed so much of my efforts in that direction too, is because it's just fascinating. It's fascinating to me that you can just Mind fuck somebody that bad to get them yeah. to say they did something is going to send them to prison for the rest of their life that they didn't do and know that they didn't do it.
1: And all they're doing is telling a story. I mean, this is what's so interesting to me too. If you take sort of a step back, right, and think about this phenomenon broadly, when you confess, all you're doing is telling a story about yourself. It's all you're doing, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And so the task of exoneration becomes flipping that story on its head, right? Just pushing back against the narrative and and changing it into the real, true narrative, which hopefully there's evidence. <laughs> Right, that supports it, whether it's DNA or other evidence, but it it sort of is mind blowing to think to t- take a step back and think they're being convicted because they told a story about themselves,
0: right? And there's no checks. I, I'm going to skip. Past, I'm going to come back to this, but the fact that there's no checks or balances afterwards in the, in the United States,
1: very few, right?
0: Yeah, is it? I think it's in the UK where, like, if somebody confesses, then it has to go through like this checklist. Before it can be used as evidence that it matches, I think it's the UK, it's one of the European countries that you have to, like, it has to be supported by evidence and certain procedures have to be followed before it can be used. And we don't have that in the United States. The
1: protections here are so spotty, so unevenly applied, and frankly, just so confusing. Many judges have written opinions that are basically like, the you know, the law, when it comes to confessions, I don't know how to apply it right? I mean, you actually read opinions like that. So in Robert Davis, just to to close the loop on that, he's told all these things, right? You're going to get the death penalty unless you confess, in which case you'll get three to five years. He ends up confessing. He says on tape, what do I need to say I did to get out of this, right? They feed him the whole story, right? That he was there with Rocky and Jessica and helped them. He repeats it back. And then it's like six in the morning and he looks up after having confessed and he says, do you think by me telling you all this, it's going to get me home? And they're like, no, Robert, you're under arrest. You know, you'll know, you see a judge on Monday. And he said, then why am I lying to you about all this just so I can go home? Right. And he said, Robert, you're not lying. He says, yes, I am. I am lying full front to your face. I am lying, right? Which just pisses them off. Robert, you know, it's, it's horrible. Robert is put in cuffs. He's walked out of the room, charged based on this confession, right? The judge does not throw it out because the law is so unclear that he didn't think there was a clear reason to throw it out even though Robert was threatened essentially with death unless he confessed. And after the confession was admitted into evidence, Robert, who was represented by one of the finest lawyers in Virginia and frankly in the country, a wonderful man named Steve Rosenfield. Robert agreed to enter an Alfred plea, right, which is a, t- a type of guilty plea in which you say "I'm innocent. But I recognize that the state has evidence against me, so I will plead guilty." Mm -hmm. Robert entered an Alfred plea in exchange for a a sentence of about 25 years, served 13 of those years before a large team of us were able to convince the governor of the state to pardon Robert. Um, Terry McAuliffe was the one who finally pardoned Robert Davis on the basis of actual innocence, and he was freed from prison.
0: But, but but again again such a sad state of affairs that it's he's so caught so deep in the system that the only way to get him out is to get outside of the system.
1: Oh, right? exactly. You have to go to the
0: governor. Exactly. Like you, you can't go through the appeals courts. You can't go. It's just not working, and you have to go outside of the of the criminal justice system to the governor in order to get.
1: Which of course is a crapshoot, right? It's highly political. You know, I mean, in that case, thank God, Governor McAuliffe, then Governor McAuliffe was brave enough to to do that. But there are plenty of governors. Who don't have that courage in in cases that involve especially murder and unfortunately Brendan Dassey is is <laughs> looking at a governor like that right now um, Tony Evers in Wisconsin. You know when we appealed Brendan's case uh, a few years ago, um, which was in season two of Making a Murderer, we won two victories first in the district court and then in the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, the Federal Court of Appeals, um, both of which looked at this <laughs> confession and the tape and listened to it all and said yeah this thing is false this thing is coerced. I mean, you know, and, and this, this person, Brendan, young man then, poses no danger to society. I'm ordering his immediate release, you know, absolutely sought right. And then we were, again, as I said, poised within about 12 hours of getting him out. And then the state pulled this very rare legal maneuver, asking the, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals to throw out our appeals victory and redo the appeal in front of a larger group of judges, not just the normal three that you get, but that they wanted to do it in front of a group of seven judges. This kind of request is very rare. It's granted in one out of every 680 cases. And it was granted in Brendan's case. So we reargued the appeal and lost by a single vote, four to three. And the rationale, part of the rationale in that opinion, which you can look up online and read, is look, the law is so unclear when it comes to confessions that we can't clearly say that what was done here was illegal, right? I mean, we'll talk about a classic example of the court system failing a human being, Brendan, failing justice, failing common sense, you know, maddening. And we, t- we took that, that opinion uh, to Governor Evers. The opinion calls uh, Brendan's case a profound miscarriage of justice. Um, you know, it is, it is the kind of situation where a governor needs to step in. Somebody outside this this system that is broken needs to step in and do the right thing. And so far, Governor Evers has not done the right thing. He has declined so far to pardon Brendan Dassey, which is a disappointment. You know, he used to be a, a, a teacher, an educator, Governor Evers, before he became the governor. he's Before this office, he was the head of the State Board of Education. So he has worked with special, special education students like Brendan. Right, he knows kids and their vulnerabilities and their suggestibility, and he so far has turned away from Brendan, which is a real disappointment.
0: It's so sad, and one of the reasons I I just respect wrongful conviction attorneys like you so much is, like you said, like it's such a disappointment. But like your job is full of disappointments. The system is so broken that I mean, it's so hard. Even a case like that that seems so. Obvious. I don't really have an opinion on Steve Avery. I have a very strong opinion on Brendan Dassey. I mean, it's very clear to me that that, that a confession was false. He absolutely needed, like any. I think anybody looking at it objectively can see that. And still, you're fighting. You know, it, it happened with you know these, these legal loopholes, like you mentioned, like Anand Syed. His conviction's overturned on solid evidence. They appeal it to the next level. It's it's upheld. He's good to go. Two years later. Of the higher court then overturns that ruling, not because you know it was based on the, the cell phone evidence, not because the evidence was incorrect, not because they think that he's guilty and a mistake was made, but because it was a time-barred argument and it was too late for him to, even though the argument was a winning argument, it was too late for him to make that argument and so they send it right back and he's right back where he started.
1: I mean, these are the kind of technicalities, you know, he just like... <laughs> grab your pillow and scream into it. I mean, it's just...
0: I, you have to do that every day.
1: It's just so wrong. I mean, so to to be fair, you know, that's the thing about these cases, right? The system is so not designed to admit error. You know, like there are a thousand obstacles. One of those is is a time bar. I'm sorry you filed your papers a few months too late or two days too late. People have been executed for those kinds of reasons, right? Which mm-hmm. are, it's just immoral. It's just immoral, Right. But the system has just a thousand obstacles in place, which is why when when we or friends, you know, at the Innocence Project, other organizations, when when we do get exonerations, when we are able to either secure somebody's release or better yet, prove them innocent, um, those those moments mean everything. They can take sometimes two years, right? We've been involved in cases where it's like, oh my gosh, there's untested, perfectly probative DNA. We'll just test the DNA, and you know, those are those are the more straightforward cases. It takes a couple of years. Or so to get through that, but those cases are, you know, the exception. Increasingly, in terms of the amount of time that it takes, it can take five years, it can take ten years, it can take fifteen years. Right before COVID, um, I had a client released from prison here in Illinois, whose case I took the same year that I got involved in Brendan Dassey's case. So I'd been working on that one for thirteen years. It's just a tragedy, but it's, you know, that feeling of watching somebody walk out of prison is is pretty. <laughs> It's pretty sustaining. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, you know, by that time, your client's your friend, right? You've been working right, together right. in the foxhole for so long. It's it's pretty magical stuff.
0: It's got to make it worth it, to, at least to get those wins to keep you going through just getting just beat to death through the system, day in and day out, leading up to that.
1: Well, and our clients too. You know, we are very much when we take a case, right? You're in it with your clients. You know, you guys are mm-hmm. on the same team. So, you know. The, it's easy to feel sort of, you know, discouraged or frustrated when you're in, in my position, but think about it from their position, right? I get to go home every night. Right. I get to see my family. I get to tuck in my kids. I get to breathe the fresh air and feel the sunshine and all those things and and they don't. They don't. And if they can stay hopeful, I can stay hopeful, you know.
0: Well, that's great. And you do amazing work with the Center for Wrongful Convictions as an attorney, and I love that you've taken that out on the podcast and I think we're going to leave this here for now for more information on this the podcast is called wrongful conviction false confessions her name is Laura Nyewriter check it out remember go to the wrongful conviction feed and her episodes are inside of that feed Laura thank you so much for taking your time we're both exhausted having just come off the tail end of Friday so thank you so much for taking the time to do this
1: it was my pleasure thanks a million